Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, January 5th, 2011. Gonna need to do a Friday light today. And I know it's Wednesday and uh, I just invent my own ways of doing things. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Part of what we do here is discernment. Part of it is teaching. And uh, today will be more of a teaching type of program. Uh, From time to time, I do this thing called Friday Light, and most of the time I don't ever make it land on Friday. I'm beginning to think that statistically I'm not capable of making Friday light occur on Friday, so therefore, uh, anyway, um, what's going on is that uh, if you uh, follow me on Facebook and Twitter, then you know that uh, yesterday after I had finished recording the program that I had received the news that my uh, wife's aunt, uh, we, her name is Aunt Betsy, uh, she she uh, died. And um, so as a result of it, um, let's just say that emotionally, uh, things have been emotional, uh, in the, uh, Roseboro family. And as a result of it, uh, I've had to take care of, uh, things pertaining to, um, that anyway. Uh, so that being the case, it won't be a normal program today, but I wanted to, uh, get a normal broadcast in. I think that tomorrow I should be able to record a normal program I'll keep you posted. So today what we're going to do is we're going to play part 7 and 8 of Dr. Rod Rosenblatt's lectures on the two natures in Christ. So if you've been following along, uh, we're going to continue that series. So without any further ado, here is Dr. Rosenblatt, uh, part 7 on the two natures in Christ. As soon as he's done with this lecture, we'll take a break, pay some bills, and then we'll uh, dive right into uh, part 8. So here's Dr. Rosenblatt. Now... What we're going to do today is going to be very familiar to you because of all of what we've done before. He is going to, in the book, claim not just that there is a... I apologize for the uh, music. That's part of the audio here for this particular lecture. Communion or communication of attributes within the person of Christ, but... 
that if you follow the scriptures carefully, there are three types of it. Now today we're going to cover what is called the first genus or the first type. This is not where the marbles are, but we're going to go through it. And either next Sunday or the Sunday following, depending upon whether I do the chapters following this, we're going to go to the second genus. <laughs> Music's a bit distracting. I would hope they would have faded it out by now. And we'll go through that. But that's not where the marbles are. Then, following that, uh, depending upon whether I do in-between stuff and pass it out to you, we will go to what is called the third genus. And that's where the marbles are. Um, the so-called genus of majesty. And that's what really is at the core of all of Lutheran theology. So, with that kind of disclaimer, um, and knowing before we start this hour that a lot of this is just review of things that he's built so far, just know that up ahead we will spend time and detailed time on what is called the third genus or the genus of majesty. And that is where the marbles are. If we, <coughs> if we together have to spend an extra Sunday so that that gets into your bones and DNA, we'll do it. Because it's the heart and core of the whole 500-page book. Lutheran scholars have said, if you want to know the center of the center of the center of Lutheran theology, it's in the third genus of the communication of the attributes. Now, just to give a little preview uh, of that, I've mentioned beforehand multiple times, this is the background to the supper. And groups know it, especially the Reformed. And what it's going to claim is that he shows his deity through his body. He demonstrates or manifests or evidences or proves his deity through his body or his humanity. Now, sometimes it helps to know what's the foil to this or what's he against? What he's against is splitting the person of Christ into two watertight compartments called the divinity and the humanity such that it looks like to Lutherans you've got a true multi-personality a true Sibyl. That's what he's against. The formal name for it, and we'll bump into it today, the formal name for it from early church history was Nestorianism. Okay? So sometimes it helps to know what's he against. That's what he's against. He's going to defend that there is one person with two natures. That's overall or globally, okay? All right, let's tackle the details then, uh, knowing beforehand that this is not where the real fight occurs, but do it anyway. The first genus, 
says he will keep the scholastic usage. I don't want to argue about terms. It's become common to call the first genus the communication of attributes. All right. As long as we know that I'm going to claim later that there's more than one mode of this communion, okay. Said some scholastics, this is only a predication of the concrete characteristics of one nature to the other. That is, we can say, God is man, man is God. In the case of Christ, we can. But, says Chemnitz, this isn't communication of the attributes at all. It's the personal communion between the natures, and we covered that in chapter 5, the hypostatic union. Then he lists others. We don't have to do that. Now, let's examine the foundation of this doctrine, the first genus, for, quote, it is sure and it is clear. In the first place, we've already shown the hypostatic union of the two natures of Christ and that it does not result in an equation of the two natures or the substance of the natures. Um, Those stay as they are. In the incarnate Christ, there are and there remain two complete, different, distinct natures, the divine and the human. We can say, (coughs) according to his deity, Christ is and remains of the same substance with the Father. And we can say, according to his humanity, he forever is and remains of the same substance with his brothers. Or that he took a true human nature from Mary. Says Chemnitz, that's legit. It's a legit way to talk. Second place. Each of these natures has its own peculiar essential or natural attributes, which it retains, even in the union, but without confusion. Uh, The difference in the natures is not abolished because of the union. Rather, the property of each nature is preserved intact, takes its part in forming the one person. Then he quotes all the fathers just to say... We're not innovating. (laughs) Third place. The two natures of Christ do not subsist separately or individually or by themselves or alone, but they're united into one person in such a way that there's one subsistence of and in these two natures, one Christ, one Son. They don't subsist separately or individually or by themselves. They are united into one person in such a way, as I said, one Christ, one Son. Says Chemnitz, we've already explained this in our earlier chapters. Of these foundations, we can construct the doctrine of the first genus. The entire matter can be most clearly understood from its antithesis. I singled out Nestorius because I think that's the classic, but he lists several. Um... One, two, three, four, uh, five. He's going to list five of these, exposit sort of what they said concerning the person of Christ and why it was not acceptable. I think Nestorius really sums it up the best. B, to Christ as God were attributed only divine attributes, to Christ as man only human ones. 
as man, but not as God, he was born of Mary, crucified, etc. As God, but not as man, he healed the sick, raised the dead, etc. Chemnitz, quote, Thus, the person of Christ as God would be one person, and the person of Christ as man would be another. There would be two persons and two Christs. Now, this got thrown out of the church on its patootie, and it should have been. Okay? But this is his foil. That's what he's going after, and Nestorius probably illustrates it better than others. Now, what are you charged with? That's under Eutyches. Attempted to avoid the division posited by Nestorius, made of the hypostatic union, union, a unity of the two natures in Christ. Think chemical reaction, where the high school chemistry prof up in the front puts in this and then puts in that, and the reaction occurs, and you've got some new thing in the, in the beaker, such that you can't say anymore that it is the two distinctly, they're all mixed together. That's what you're charged with by your form brethren, Eutychianism or Eutyches. Now, you need to know what the charge against you is. When I walk into the room and R.C. goes, the monophysites are here, it's another way of saying Eutyches. Huh? 500-year-old fight. So you are charged with being guilty of Eutychianism. Why? Because of the communion of properties or the communion of the attributes. So that's good to know. Over to the next page. The true faith sails carefully between these rocks under the guiding light of God's word holding to a middle road. The true faith acknowledges that there is a communication of attributes but not a mixture of the natures over and over and over and over and over again. So that we might say the humanity is said to be the deity. No, 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 no. The Reformed think we're saying that. We're not. Or that an essential property of one nature becomes a substantial property of the other nature. No, 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 no. But the property which belongs to the one nature is communicated to the person of Christ in the concrete word doesn't indicate the natures in themselves, but the person. We don't say the humanity is deity. Huh? That would be to make an error, but we don't say that. Moreover, the true faith does not wish with Nestorius that there be one person in Christ to whom the divine attributes are applied and another to whom the human are applied. Rather, there is one and the same person who subsists in both natures and to which are communicated or attributed all the characteristics which which belong essentially to either the divine or the human natures. But let us not confuse the natures with their attributes. That takes a little work. You can ask uh, Dr. Brandt on that. We'd like to clarify clarify on the basis of Scripture to which nature in Christ a characteristic essentially belongs, or to which nature such a statement about the person is made. In this way, we preserve the unity of the person and also the difference of the natures and the distinction of the attributes. These are the foundations of the doctrine. 
Down at E, our schools concerned themselves with modes of speech. Words which denoted the united yet distinct natures we call abstract. Words which indicate the person we call concrete. Therefore, one nature is not predicated the other in the abstract. The deity is not called the humanity, or vice versa. Examples of correct and incorrect ways of speaking. It is not correct to say that the humanity is an essence generated from the Father from eternity. It's not correct to say the deity is pierced with nails or wounded with a spear, but it is correct to say of the concrete person of Christ, the Son of Man ascended where he was before. Now, I think he's taking Son of Man here as a reference to the humanity. Don't press me on whether that's a fair representation of Jesus' own self-designation, which I think was drawn from Daniel and was a divine figure from heaven come down to earth. I think there was, there was method to his madness in calling himself son of man because it was from Daniel, and the Jews were under the boot of Rome, and what book were they reading? Just as if we go under the boot of the state, we'll start reading the book of Revelation, Lord help us. Um, they were reading Daniel. And the term son of man, or the phrase son of man, came from Daniel. But here I think he's using it as a reference to Jesus' humanity. You don't talk about humanity ascending where it was before, but that's how Scripture talks. Or, the Lord of glory is crucified. It's a quotation from Acts, I think. You crucified the Lord of glory. That is an odd way to talk. But Chemnitz says, learn from this. Scripture talks in these odd ways, and if we're careful, uh, we might be able to make some sense out of this. We crucified the Lord of glory. Um, Demosthenes, you can leave that. I'll leave that. Okay, statements in which Scripture attributes the qualities of the natures to the person with concrete designations or personal names attributing the qualities of the natures to the person of Christ. Okay, he said, I I take it this will be accepted without controversy. Why? Because he's going to quote the scriptures. And in that day, unlike ours, that was definitive. If you were in line with what the text of scripture said, that was a sufficient argument. Don't ask me to contrast today, where if you attribute something to Scripture, they might call the principal and have you kicked out of the school for making reference to it, or some other asinine thing. Um, We're in a completely different bailiwick than they. Um, In the 16th century, many times uh, as we portray it in our churches, you get the idea that only Luther believed the Scripture hogwash. Everybody did, minus a few scholars twiddling with Genesis 1 through 3, but it was scholars and nobody of the laity knew anything of it or paid much attention. Um, If you had said in the 16th century something like that you disagreed with something in Scripture, the person with you would cross themselves and say, how did the devil bring that into your mind? Different day. Okay? 
<coughs> so Chemnitz is going to argue that Scripture itself talks like this. Okay? All right. How the attributes of the natures are attributed to the person of Christ. First case. When in Scripture, the, scripture, the property of the divine nature is predicated in the concrete of the divine nature in Christ. John 5, 19. What the Father does, these things the Son also does also. Hebrews 3, 4 through 6. Christ as God created all things. Then another um, subdivision. When in Scripture, the property of the human nature is predicated in the concrete of the human nature in Christ. Matthew 20, 18 through 19. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners, is crucified, and rises from the dead. Then another subcase. When in Scripture, the property of the divine nature is attributed in the concrete to the human nature in Christ. Again, he uses uh, Son of Man. John six sixty two. If you shall see the Son of Man ascending where he was before, or 1 Corinthians fifteen forty seven. The second man is from heaven. Okay. Then another sub-possibility. When in Scripture the property of the human nature is predicated in the concrete of the divine nature in Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.8, the Lord of glory is crucified. Acts 3.15, you have killed the author of life. Acts 20.28, 20, God has redeemed the church with his own blood. We don't think of God having blood. God has redeemed the church with his own blood. Zechariah 12, Jehovah or Yahweh stretching forth the heavens and establishing the earth said, They shall look on me whom they have pierced. Odd way to talk. Odd way to talk. Then, subcategory, when the properties of the natures are attributed to the person, the things which are proper to each nature are attributed in the concrete, regardless of which nature is involved. 1 Timothy 2.5, the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ. Or Acts 20.28, God has redeemed the church. Then when a property which belongs to one nature, either the human or the divine, or divine or the human, is attributed concretely to both. Pardon me while I find, mark a typo. Hebrews 13.8, Christ is yesterday, that is, from eternity. Matthew 1.18, Christ is born of the Virgin Mary. Romans 6.3 and 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffers and dies. And finally, when a property which pertains to both natures is predicated concretely of both natures. Christ is the Redeemer, the Mediator, the Savior. Okay? And he said, we're going to put those under the second genus, so don't worry about it at this point. Um. All right, let me read the summary of the matter. I'll, you can read those recent controversies on your own. The summary of the matter, and then I'll open it up for questions. Last page. 
For there is one and the same hypostasis of the incarnate Christ, whether we describe him concretely by the properties of the divine or the human natures or by both. There is one person subsisting in a duality and in two natures. Therefore, in order to demonstrate the intimate unity of the person, those things which belong to either the divine or the human nature or or to both, are attributed to the one person, which is described as using concrete terms taken either from the divine or the human nature, (coughs) or from both natures, as has been shown by examples. However, lest anyone think the natures are commingled, we're in a habit of adding the statement, and this in accord with Scripture, that to whatever nature a property pertains, this is attributed to the person or according to one of the two natures, something should be attributed to the person, as we shall soon point out when we consider the distinctive particles. All right. Now, as I said, this is not something that you'll have run into for the first time here, given what we've done prior. But he goes through it. We'll do the same thing with the second genus, but you want to be here when we do the third because that's where all the marbles are. Okay? So this is fairly basic given what he's done so far. We're we're not we're going to we're going to deny mixing the natures. He always had as one person a divine nature and a human nature and still does and will forever. And we are not arguing that somehow those are mixed. That's out. That's out. But When you get to Scripture, you find that there are various, very unusual ways of speaking. A blood of God and so forth. And he believes that if we're very careful here, we can say a few things without imagining that we're possessing exhaustive knowledge of any of it. But he thinks it's worth doing because it's basic creedal Christianity. Um, if you had asked Chemnitz whether he was doing just Lutheranism, you would have gotten the same answer that you got from the 16th century guys with regard to the Augsburg Confession. No, this belongs to the whole Christian church on earth if it'll take it. Huh? Remember Augsburg when they read the Augsburg Confession? It did function to lay out in detail what they held. It did that. That's what they were required to do before all the powers of the state and all the powers of the church of that day to lay it out in detail down on paper. But the Augsburg Confession, they figured, was a possession of the whole Christian church on earth, not just the Lutheran sect. Same thing here. He imagines that what he's doing is Nicene Christianity and that anybody's welcome to salute or to join up. If they see that this is soundly scriptural, come on in. Okay? All right. With that, I'll open it up, and I'll answer what I can, or if I can. In the third, that's what my thesis was on, and I'll be a little more familiar. Glorified man. Yeah, that wouldn't have occurred before 
No. He did not have two natures before the conception. And then God is spirit. Yes. Well, remember, the quotation you're using from the woman at the Samaritan well, if you look for parallels, you're going to be hard-pressed. Now, we use that, especially up against the Mormon cult, where, in case you don't know it, Jesus was, uh, was uh, generated by intercourse between the Father and Mary. <laughs> um, Yeah, um, let's let's leave them as an aberration off the table, but I use it as a foil. The claim is, from all eternity, he was the second person. And that when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and Augustus decided to make everybody go back to their hometown to register for taxation purposes, at that particular time, the eternal, bodiless, second person assumed to himself a true human nature and will have it forever. It started at a point in earthly time. He reigns and will be bodily forever. That will be a glorified body, but yes. Um the only glimpse I think of immediately from Scripture is the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter argues from that. We were there. Now, not only do you see that at the Mount of Transfiguration it's so bright they can't look, but one of the dumbest lines in the whole of Scripture occurs at that point. Peter, the wires overheating, says something Supremely stupid. This is really great. Let's build three tents huh? and, and stay here forever. One of the stupidest lines in all of Scripture. Um, we're not made for that, but still, that's a glimpse. That's a glimpse. He was glorified before their eyes and their brain wires overheated. Now, we'll be equipped for it in glory, but this side of death... We're not. We're not. Okay, Dave. I, I think it's great that you connected this scripture verse. Uh, really yeah, okay. Um, I've asked my students whether at least once a year in their congregations, the ones who are Lutheran, we've only got fewer than 50% Lutheran, but the ones who do have some sort of affiliation with Lutheranism in some way, I'll ask them in class, do you once a year read the Athanasian Creed? A lot of congregations do. And their answer is, for the most part, yes. They go through line by line, one Sunday in the church year, this is the faith which must be believed. And that's worth doing. I'm all for that at least once a year because it's got the negatives built in. It's fairly typical in the Lutheran confessions to say, we affirm this and this and this and this. And then the part that makes wimpy Lutherans bow out, and therefore we condemn 
this and this and this and this. God bring us back to that. Huh? Yeah, the Athanasian Creed, this must be believed. And here it is, the faith from Jude, earnestly content, content earnestly for the faith. Now there it doesn't mean your belief in Christ. There it means the content of Christianity, the faith. And the Athanasian Creed says, this must be believed. And I love it that it's got the condemnations. You say, boy, you really are house, aren't you? Huh? I love house. Wonder why that is. Wonder why that is. Anyway. Um, it's got that feistiness to it that we are completely absent in today's Christianity. It used to be characteristic Protestant liberalism that they wanted peace at any price. Now it's evangelicalism. Well, you know, uh, doctrine divides. What we need is unity. The hell we need unity. When the heresies are, are all around us, if there's ever a time when you don't want peace, that's it. One time, when we used to do the White Horse Inn live and had to drive across the whole L.A. basin together to get to Glendale to the studio, sometimes some young men would go up with us and they'd watch and, uh, as we made the show. And then we'd come back to Dr. Horton's house for beer and pizza afterwards. And they'd ride up or drive up and meet us there at the studio and sometimes would comment a little on the show before we got back in our cars and drove back to Anaheim. And one time, somebody said to Mike, not yet Dr. Horton, but said to Mike, aren't you guys a little negative? And Mike, after, after live radio for an hour, you're wrung like a wash rag, you're tired, you're short of patience, the fuse is short, and even such a gentleman as Mike, you know, fired back at this kid. If what's going on in Protestantism today doesn't piss you off, what would piss you off? Huh? All right, you don't have to. You don't have to pay extra for those. <clears throat> I want feisty, and Missouri's good at it. Huh? That part. Now, when it turns on itself, it gets really ugly. But when it has to do with manifest heresies, only the Southern Baptists and the Missouri Lutherans are going to be calling a spade a spade. So let them do it, and the rest go off in a 19th century woman's faint. <gasps> Can't believe they said that. <gasps> That's 19th century woman fainting. (gasps) Let him faint. Let him faint. All right. Thank you for your attention. We'll go on from here to the second genus, but be here when we do the third. All right. Thanks for your attention. All right. We're going to pause right there. Dr. Rod Rosenblatt in rare form. And uh, boy, does he have a point. Yeah, that's right. Uh, in a in a firefight that requires uh, somebody to call a spade a spade, it seems like Missouri Synod Lutherans and Southern Baptists are the uh, 
only ones in Protestantism willing to do that work. <clears throat> do you find it ironic then that the, I'm a Missouri Synod? Yeah, anyway, uh, <clears throat> if you like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, this program calls a spade a spade. Yeah, heresy is heresy, and we don't have a problem saying what it is and saying who be saying it. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially, and we do need you to do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate, the other says Join Our Crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you in advance, ahead of time, for uh, for doing so. Your your contributions make it possible for to keep well for us to keep doing what we're doing. And so we uh, truly do appreciate it 
when you do that. Now, today we said uh, I said we would be doing part seven and eight of uh, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt's series on the two natures in Christ. Here is part eight. Some of this I'm going to send you home with, uh, and we won't spend time in class, but let me explain the pieces parts that you have. There is one that is simply the equivalent of a Xerox. This is a section where Chemnitz traces the first genus through all the history of the church, and one of the sections is Luther. That's what I grabbed. Luther commenting on this first genus as he is doing doing work with the biblical text. Uh, The first page is two-thirds blank, um, the first face, and it's page 190. We're not going to be going through that this morning, but just so you've got it, that's Luther using it in various passages. All right? The next one, uh, which we'll not go through in detail, but maybe have time for Q&A on it next time we meet, is headed Christ Jesus. This I literally lifted out of what is called the Lutheran Cyclopedia. Dr. Brandt last week said, could you give us something that sort of talks about these three genera and defines them and tells us uh, what's going on here? And I said, sure, I'll get it to you next week. So this is available online. That's where I got it. Went to the LCMS website, which I never do. Um... And the key to it is the bottom of page three and all of page four. I gave you more than is the subject of our class, but the subject of our class, bottom half of page three, the communication of the attributes, D. So mark for yourself, I'll take a look at that. This is sort of dictionary definition stuff. And I just threw in the rest of it. It's a whole article on Christology. Why not? As long as we're at this. Next one is an outline of chapter 15. Chemnitz, Distinguishing Particles or Expressions. Now, this, if you're at all familiar with the uh, Lutheran Confessions... We use this sort of machinery, particularly with regard to the doctrine of justification. Um, if, you're, if you're working with the Lutheran confessions, particularly something like the apology or defense of the Augsburg Confession, you'll find that Melanchthon and others give just detailed work in why the full formula is by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ's death and work alone, and so forth. And they just squeeze this like blood out of a turnip. Um, And to give you an illustration of uh, how we can, uh, can sort of skip over the importance of the prepositions we can take literally the translation of the New Testament, which has shorthand versions, justification by faith. 
biblical text, justification by faith. And in the American scene, what you get is the understanding that my faith saves me. And the book of Concord will correct that. It's Christ in his blood that saves you, not even your faith. When we talk about sola fide or faith in Christ nude or faith in Christ without works or faith in Christ alone, the emphasis is on a particular syllable, Christ, not our faith. Our faith, the Luther compared and others did, to a beggar's hand that receives the gift. But the emphasis is not on my faith. The emphasis is on Christ who died for me. You say, gee, isn't this more detailed than anybody wants to know? Well, try being thrown back for your assurance on the strength of your faith sometime. Try it in the hospital. And what I will need and what you will need as we lie there dying is a pastor who will tell us that Christ's death saves us, not our faith. Huh? So when they're squeezing these things, these distinguishing particles or expressions, it's actually got to do with what justifies us, and to even remove from the board my faith. Does that make sense? The one is objective, the other is subjective. And the Lutherans want to stress the objective, Christ bleeding, Christ dying, not your strength of faith or weakness of it. Hmm? I know that sounds theoretical, but it isn't. When push comes to shove, it ain't theoretical. Uh, When somebody looks at you and your pastor looks at you and says, I don't think I have any faith at all. And the clock's ticking. What he has is Christ and his cross and his blood. And he's going to try and replace your faith with Christ and his death and his blood to your assurance. Right? Now, I think that other group, national groups, uh, probably aren't as vulnerable to this as Americans. Uh, I have tried to repent in sackcloth and ashes. I tell the story to my students that when I was young, I was a boy soprano, and brides would ask me to sing at their wedding. Lord have mercy. Um, (laughs) And they would give me something like, I Believe, a perfectly awful song from back in the 50s, truly vomit-worthy. I believe that for every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows. I believe that even in the darkest night, a candle glows. I believe for everyone who goes astray, someone will come to show the way. The Americans vulnerable to that kind of crap. (laughs) Huh? This is as far from the Reformation as you can possibly, possibly get. 
um, uh, maybe one, one rung lower on the ladder, the closing line of Gone with the Wind, well, there's always tomorrow. <laughs> when the New Testament is talking about pistis, the Greek word for faith, it's talking about putting a wooden stake through the vampire heart of my virtues, which suck, and instead being twisted to all I've got's Christ in his blood. Least in column A. Huh? The judgment, justification before the holy God. Virtues gotta die and be replaced with somebody else and what they did. So, um, That's why these long sort of linguistic twisting of the of the machinery of the of the biblical verses counts. Uh, And only somebody who has looked in the in the darkness, like in the haunted house, and seen those eyes blinking back that say, You have no faith. You're you're a hypocrite, your faith is faked, I know it, you know it. Luther knew this well. Uh, he called them the Adenfechtungen, and it's almost untranslatable. Terrors of hell. What he was trying to get across was, even in his later years, wakening in the middle of the night and saying, the devil saying, Luther, you've led all these people to hell, and it's your fault. Not only will you go there, you'll have led them all there with you. Terrors. Night terrors, Anfechtungen. Um, so this linguistic squeezing of the prepositional phrases is to make sure that we're, that we're using all of what St. Paul has to say to get us returned, rotated toward Christ and his cross outside of us and away from our faith within us. Huh? So I'll leave it to you to uh, to look at during the week, and then I'll open next time maybe with time for, if you looked at it, something you'd like to ask about it. But it's the difference between an objective gospel and a subjective one. Right? Most of America is involved with a subjective gospel of feel good, hmm? or payoff, or victory, or rising, or you name it. I try to get across to our students, look, if your basic service you're attending is headed upwards and ain't Lutheran, the basic direction in classical Lutheran theology is God reaching down and giving free gifts, not your rising to meet him. Let the evangelicals do that. Huh? If they want to fly and glide, let them do it. But it ain't the Reformation. Right? All right, now let's look at the one we'll look at today, chapter 16, the use of this doctrine of the first genus. Um, It's headed Chemnitz, the use of this doctrine of the first genus. And we won't have time to do all the details, but at least we can cover the major that he's arguing. First of all, introduction. Nobody get the idea that it's mere idle subtlety to exercise care in speaking concerning the correct use of this doctrine. First, 
it will help us to hold and confess the correct faith concerning the one person and the two natures. Second, by observing these rules concerning the communication of the attributes, we separate ourselves from all fanatic, the German is schwärmerei, literally swarmers, um, the Anabaptists, we would say Pentecostals, not Baptists so much as Pentecostal, fanatic opinions pertaining to either Christ's person or his natures. Now that I guess we can look at in a little detail. Say a Nestorian or a Eutychian seems to be hiding something. The danger is that he might mislead the uncautious by his use of general terms. The norm of this doctrine may be applied for all to see. Deception can be discovered, exposed, and refuted. His major protagonist here is Nestorius, D. And his charge is that the reason Nestorius was thrown out of the church on his patuti was that he ended up with two Jesuses, two Christs, one man and one God. Um, he was schizoid. He was a multi-personality. He was Sybil. And that was rightly thrown out. In the background here is hovering the Reformed. Okay? So you can read the, the quotes on that. And then the one that he and we are going to be charged with on top of page two, Eutyches. And he's going to tackle that with biblical phrase and say the, the church was right to have thrown him out on his patootie too. Why? Because the natures were mixed and Jesus was neither fully God nor fully man, but some new substance, maybe called God-man, but he wasn't God and he wasn't man anymore. It was some sort of a commingling. And he said the church was right to throw that one out too. We're neither. Third, without the support of this doctrine, many passages of Scripture cannot be correctly interpreted or defended against the corruptions of heretics. Now, here is where you see the thing drawn from the verses, and it isn't generalized or philosophical language. He's going to actually apply it to, to particular verses and how the heretics use those verses to come to conclusions they ought not to have come to. So he does it uh, in detail there. Um, the first one, Jeremiah 23, 6. And from this, some imagine only the divine nature of Christ is our righteousness. Then 1 Timothy 2, 5. The one mediator between, between God and men, the, the man Christ Jesus. From this, others imagine this means that only the human nature of Christ is our mediator. 1 Corinthians 15. The second man from heaven. And John three thirteen, The son of man descended from heaven. And what the Manichaeans did with those verses... Um, and then Luke 135, that which is born of you shall be called the Son of God. Some imagine from this that the Son of God did not exist before the Virgin Mary. 1 Corinthians 2.8, the Lord of glory was crucified, and what the heretics did with that. Okay, so there's the sort of thing he's traced the history of exegesis uh, through the heretics to say, this is what's been done with the verses, and it is not necessary, and it's bad scholarship. Right? 
what we know as creedal Christianity, survives bad exegesis and has been delivered to us through the work of many, many in the whole history of the Western Christian Church for free. Costs them dearly, but it's given to us served on a platter. Here, you've been redeemed by somebody, one individual, one afternoon, who is true God, true man, one person dying for you, dying for your sin, and it's as sure as his resurrection from the dead that your resurrection will follow. Be of good cheer. This is where the Lutherans are at their best. There are places where we're really at our worst. This is not one of them. Okay? Even those who are not from our circles will say, nobody's done this the way the Lutherans have. Nobody's done the work on it the way they have. Um, uh, I, th- I don't think I'm talking out of school. We had a gathering years and years ago at, uh, at Cambridge, Massachusetts, to draw up what we called the Cambridge Statement. We, get, we had every seminary professor from every Baptist seminary you can imagine in America <coughs> to see who would sign on to sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christus, who will sign on to that? And it was everybody who was there. Well, we needed uh, the first night, of course, a place to have drinks and cigars. So uh, we asked uh, Dr. Preuss, uh, he had some palatial suite, asked if we could use it, he said, sure. So I got there a little bit late, and there was Dr. Horton and six LCMS Seminary prof surrounding him, everybody with drinks, and the subject was Christology. This stuff. And Mike looked up and smiled at me as I walked into the room and said, I'll bet you love this, Rod. Well, it's our, this is our strong suit. This is our strong suit. The, the Christology, the cross, and the nature of justification. That's our major. More than anybody else. Fourth, these modes of speaking teach us many useful things about the mystery of the incarnation and redemption. And great use of the scripture text underneath that. And then the closing, closing exposition. Therefore, God, whom we call the Lord, the Son of God... And the Logos, by the conception of his own flesh and by his nativity, can be said, because of the hypostatic union, to have been conceived and born of the Virgin Mary, who is therefore correctly called the mother of the Lord and the God-bearer. I think I've mentioned this before. Quick digression. In an earlier century, the way in which the deity of Christ was defended was over a fight over whether Mary was Theotokos or God-bearer. And that can sort of throw somebody like me. I worry that I might have been on the wrong side of that. But it was the way in which they were arguing the full deity of Christ was Mary the God-bearer. Not that she bore the Father, but she bore the Son who was fully God so that we can say she was the God-bearer. It was the way they fought the fight in that century. But we will lose, sorry, lose this great comfort if we imagine that only a man or mere flesh born of the Virgin Mary did this for us and not the incarnate God, Emmanuel. 
And yet remember that the difference of the natures remains unmingled. In the same way, it is also true (coughs) that the nature of the Logos, that is the deity itself, is not torn by the scourges or pierced by the nails or wounded by the spear, for these are properties of the flesh. And then finally, nor should we believe that Christ's passion is to be attributed to the deity only by any figure of speech. We're talking about what actually took place. That the the divine and human Messiah was crucified for us and for our sin one afternoon and that that's going to work. It's another way of defending justification. Okay, for free. All right, let me uh, let me stop it with that. You can uh, you can uh, take a look at some of the detail work, and I'll try to remember next time to leave some time for questions on the other pages if you want to look at them during the week um, and bring something up when we meet together next time. Let me throw it open for questions, preferably on the subject, um, <laughs> not astronomy or calculus. I'll. Uh, Doctor, you mentioned the third genus coming up. Is that in the future yet? Yes, and it's where the marbles are. That's the marbles. Okay, thank you. I was wondering if you could define for us, when we we read the word nature here, in the third uh, C, under 6C, in the same way, it is the true nature of the Logos, that is the deity itself, is not torn by the scourges or pierced by the nails or wounded by the spear. So we talk about, it seems to be that you're talking about one nature, this happened to, another nature, that happened to. Can you define for us what you mean by nature? Yeah, well, that's, uh, go back to Dr. Uh, Brandt's work. That was that chapter one that had to do with here, here's the linguistics of what we're going to do in the rest of the book, uh, because he was the one who, did that. If you get the, the readout of chapter one, it's the, it's the analysis of I'm going to have to use some words here and here's how I'm going to use them. But uh, I will make comment, that's as close as Chemnitz gets to um, talking about the natures, one and the other. You'll read that over and over again in the pass out from Luther. We particularly want to say when in doubt, talk about the whole Christ, um, including those bo- both of those natures. We get nervous when we start hearing people talk about the one nature did this and the other nature did that. It isn't that we won't do it at all, but we walk very, very carefully. Other Christians think this is not a problem at all, and Lutherans think it is. What, what does nature mean? Well... <laughs> Dale? What are you? It's, it's, it's uh, the nature of a thing is, is... It's essence? It's essence, yeah. Uh, nature what it is, makes, is, what a, makes is, it what it is, yeah, Aristotle? Yeah, and, and it's, it's what you can't take away with, uh, from a thing without destroying it. So, you know, uh, uh, what he's saying here is that it's the nature of flesh. Let me see, where is it? You're at 6C? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, uh, it's the nature of flesh to be pierced. torn and pierced and all that 
it's not the nature of the Divinity. logos. Yeah, yeah. Logos. It's, it's. I mean, in some sense, it's not even the nature of the soul of man to be torn and stuff because that's also not right flesh. Right. Um, right. I think that's now, as close as we can get. If I can follow up on sure, that go. that issue, sure. Does the logos feel the pain though? We we. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna make reference. I'm gonna. You might as well know this. I'm going to make reference to a very old heresy. If you want to impress your friends and confound your enemies, it's patripassionism. And it's one of the oldest heresies there is. I don't know. Yeah, it could pretty be. old. Anyway, we will walk the edge of that. That is, we are talking about that somehow the father is not disaffected by the death of his son isolated off from it. That's as much as I'll say, or I'll walk right into that heresy. But we did not like the father being separated from the son. Um, when, when we talk about the crucifixion, we're talking about the father giving his only son into death for our sakes. And we'll sort of walk the edge of that heresy. We're more worried about Aristotle's God or the God of the deists who is completely unaffected by you, whether you know it or not. The early American deists tried to start a church. And it's hard to gather a church when the God whom you're worshiping is completely disinterested in you and prayer is silly. That one scares us more than maybe having our toe in the water of patripassionism. Does that make any sense? It does, but this would be, I'm actually asking about the son, the logos, whether he felt the pain. Oh, I, I'd have to look in Chemnitz to see if he actually, I doubt that he talked that way. Plus, he's always more interested in talking about the person, you know. That's part of what this book is about, there, it's a minefield, and you'd be better off to not say certain things than to enter into the minefield and blow up. I don't think we'll find a lot of passages like that in his book where he starts dealing with that. And the obvious is, the further you get from the text itself, the more speculative it's becoming. And part of our problem is we love to speculate. Well, the theologians ought to be the ones in the front of the room saying, you know, the ver I don't know a verse on that, so I don't know. We ought to be the leaders, and we, in general, we don't talk like that because we hate saying the phrase, I don't know. We like to be the ones who are encyclopedic in front of the crowds. Bosh! It is highly godly to say, I don't know. Scripture doesn't tell me. I hope that you'll pick up that all of this Technical language. Really, what all of those early guys had in mind was that our assurance would be solid. That our assurance that we were justified in spite of our sin, and deep it is, that Christ is greater. That Christ is greater than our sin. Um, they were 
doing in the detail work what they said they wanted to do when they spoke more generally. That is, Christianity is deeply about Christ, and it's not primarily about you or me. It's about him and what he did, given what we've gotten ourselves into. In other words, we are the problem, not the answer. Americans hate this. Um, But we have made ourselves the problem from way back in Genesis 3 all the way forward. God, who would have had every right to erase the world and say, I'm going to start over, didn't. And at great cost to him, redeemed us in the concrete, in person, to death. And what they're going to try and get across, and this is going to continue throughout this volume, is you can die with just that, and it's going to work. It's going to work. Just what? Your faith? Not finally. Just Christ. Just Christ and his death and cross. Okay? We just, in the detail work and in the general um, propositions, wanted to defend that 33 ways from Friday. Now, if you imagine that this is available in any old church in America, I'm going to disappoint you because it isn't. Even some great churches won't have the emphasis on this syllable. They won't. Um, One of the even liberal Lutheran guys uh, complains in one of his books that there's much too much talk about God apart from Christ. And the Lutherans don't want to do that. Or or we want to self-correct if we do. Uh, We want to talk about that particular one who became flesh in Christ and for a particular purpose, and he told us 33 ways from Friday what it was, and it was to die. I came to die. Not to teach, though that's there. I came to die. And this has to do with you and me and... uh, and coffins, and dirt, and what the pastor's saying as you look down in there. Free justification. All right. Well, then, thanks for your attention. Any more questions? Take a look at the paper if you want to. Is that a raised hand, Craig? Yeah. Yeah, Dr. Rosenblatt, on... um page four, we've got the uh, by his own hypostatic union, and that term keeps coming up. What do other denominations, they reject that term hypostatic union, and what would their uh, the closest what is, is their union? The or what closest good question. The closest is Rome, and they won't. They said, we've got no problem here with this when it, we published it. And of the others, it's the classically reformed who will use the phrase hypostatic union, but they don't mean the same thing. Um, If Luther tended toward the Eutychian side, the Calvinists tend toward the Nestorian side, and that's part of what's in the background of this book. Uh, And it's going to come full bloom in the supper. Going to come. 
Um, this is why R.C. stood up that time when I did a seminar at a Ligonier conference and stood up that evening in the first plenary session and said, and on this, Rosenblatt's wrong. <clears throat> and I said to him afterwards, you know, I wasn't doing Rosenblattianism, R.C. Um, this, this happens to be from Chemnitz, and it's how we do Christology. And he laughed, and he... he I think knew that, but he said to me, if you had 1,800 Christians in a live mic, would you have done it to me? I said, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so the, the phrase hypostatic union is there, but certainly not communication of attributes. Certainly not that. Maybe it would help if you could tell us, what is a hypostasis? Right, that's, that the, there's that's a, why the, I assigned that to you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that the hypostasis is what we also call the person. Yes. That's the best it's English the, rendering right. I know. So, so yes. I mean, in some ways, this term, it sounds very impressive, hypostatic union. But just remember that a hypostasis is a person. Yes. So we're talking about the person of Christ. Yes. When we talk about the hypostatic union. Right. Right. Yeah. All right. Oh, Art, another one? Yeah. Thanks, Jim. Uh, you've mentioned uh, Dr. Sproul, R.C. Sproul, many times. Mm -hmm. And from what you just said, though, it sounds like he also will be saved. Oh, sure. There you go. Oh, Thank sure. You. Right. Thank you. Sure. And then he'll become Lutheran in heaven. <laughs> they say the same thing of us. They say the same thing of us. Rosenblatt will be reformed when he gets to heaven. And they don't mean morally. They mean... Calvinism. I, I, I'll be reformed the other way, too. Anyway. All right. Thanks for your attention. Hope it's of help to you. There you have it. Good stuff. And uh, notice that he, uh, he, you know, he, he hits the same themes uh, many different ways. And that's a good way of teaching, you know, so that you, this stuff gets drilled in farther and farther. Now, I think in the next segments, uh, 9 and 10, we finally get to where all the beans are or, you know, where all the, well, I forget the phrase he uses, but you understand what I'm saying. It, it, you know, there's there's still a few more lectures left for us to cover, and, uh, and so I think we've got well, at least three more weeks on this, maybe a few more, but... Um, so what'd you think? I, you know, you know that we're listener-supported radio, you know that whole shtick. What did you think? If you would like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.